Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We continue our study of Parsha. One of the... Uh, every Parsha is phenomenal, but this is a Parsha that changed the face of humanity. Avram Avinu, Abraham. Very, very exciting to me. In fact, I'm going to write about it for my blog for the weekly this week. Because when you think about one man's impact on humanity, it's astounding. I've been reading a book someone gave me, uh, Martin Gilbert, the great British historian, called Jews in the House of Ishmael which is the history of Jews in Arab lands. And it begins with the history of Islam, of, uh, of uh, Muhammad. And reading that, it's astounding to learn about the way that he began Islam and the uh, great obstacles that he faced, his lack of success in its, in its beginning, in its first few years. He had a breakthrough to have 40 followers, and then a major breakthrough when he had 700 followers, and then, of course, he hit the tipping point when he had 40,000, and that's when they conquered the Arab Peninsula. And by his death, which was only a few years later, he had, uh, Islam had spread. So it's unbelievable. And I was so moved, not, of course, by Islam in particular, but the idea that one person could have such a revolutionary impact on the world. And then it occurred to me, forget Muhammad in the 7th century. That might be much more recent to our time. But Avram Avinu, Avram Avinu is surrounded by pagans in a world of hedonism, in a world of self-centeredness, in a world of materialism, a world of pleasure. Avram Avinu identifies two qualities, monotheism, the belief in one God, and selflessness, the notion of caring about other people. And here we are, and the majority of the globe, Jews, Christians, Muslims, if you add the number, billions of people, has Avram Avinu's experiment been successful? Absolutely. It's unbelievable when you think about the numbers. He revolutionized the way the world thinks about God. From We take it for granted. I mean, I doubt whether any of us even know a pagan. Do we even know anyone who believes in more than one God? Let's leave aside Christianity for a moment. Halachically, we've studied that in the past. So the Ramah Paskins, it's uh, Tziruf, it's not... Uh, it's Shituf, it's Shituf, not uh, Abadazar. Maybe Hindus. Okay, fine. But, but in the classic sense of paganism or idolatry, it's unusual. I mean, I remember in Washington Heights and YU, you know, some of our neighbors had little chickens they were slaughtering in the backyard. There was some, some good old-fashioned paganism taking place and idolatry. But the world has been revolutionized, and it's through the, uh, through the work of Avram Avinu. This week's Parsha, one man. If you ever doubt what one person can do to the face of the globe, trace it back to Avram Avinu. And the same is true, by the way, for the other world religions. Islam with, uh, with Muhammad and Christianity not with Jesus. It wasn't until way after Jesus' death with Paul that Christianity was born and began to uh, spread. But in all, in all cases, one person has a thought. I, this is weighing heavily on me. It's what I'm going to write about in, in um, the wake of the Pew study and just weighing heavily on, on me, I'm sure, as it does on you. You have to come to one of two conclusions when you read the results of that study. Either you throw your hands in the air and you say, okay, we're going to hunker down, take care of our own, like Noah, get in the teva, protect our families in continuity, and the 71% intermarrying, you know, zeigesund, all the best, good luck to you, we can't take care of it. Assimilation is out of the barn, and it's rampant, and we're going to just take care of our own, and good luck. That's one reaction, it's not the one I choose, but it's one reaction. Or the opposite is something radical has to happen. In America, Judaism in America, Judaism with freedom and democracy and openness and autonomy and universalism, something radical has to happen. So isn't Avram Avinu going to stand up? Will there be a prophet in our day who will not radically change Judaism, God forbid, that's not within our purview, but who will change the way we communicate it, articulate it, position it, 
how we influence the world to become something attractive to the Jewish people. Anyway, so this is something weighing heavily on me, and Parsha's Lech was the perfect Parsha. The other thing that came out in Martin Gilbert's book, and if you study this even superficially, and I'm, I'm giving you away all, everything I plan on writing, maybe not, we'll see, you never know what's going to happen between now and Friday in the world, but, but the other thing that's remarkable is, you know, when, when Muhammad first went and began Islam, who was his first target audience who he thought he would, would be attracted to it? The Jews. They're living among pagans. Judaism has monotheism. Islam is in monotheism light. It's modeled the same way. It begins with praying three times a day, even though today they're up to five. Three times a day, it has the concept of Sabbath. It has a diet. It has circumcision. It's modeled after Judaism, but it's Judaism light. And he thinks that it's going to have a great appeal. And when the Jews reject it, right from the very outset, Muhammad is turned off to the Jews and built into the fabric of the religion is this resentment and anger towards the very people he targeted who didn't embrace it at its outset. Christianity was the same thing. Paul thought he was going to introduce a Judaism light and it would have great appeal to the Jewish community. And they looked at him and said, huh, that's just a cheap reproduction. It's a counterfeit version of what we have. We're not interested. And again, you know, what was the result? We, we know, the Crusades and so on. So, but what was remarkable is why did Muhammad, why did Paul think that their version of monotheism would be attractive? When the Jews were dispersed after the destruction of the Second Temple to Rome, even beforehand, you know what was happening in Rome and Italy? Conversion to Judaism. Members of the pagan community who were so inspired by monotheism were converting to become Jewish. The same was true in the, in the Arab lands when Muhammad began. He saw entire peoples converting to Judaism. Rabbi Yehud Alevi, the story of the Kuzari, to which today there's tremendous historical evidence is an accurate story that actually took place. The king of the Khazars converted and took with him his entire nation. So what's remarkable is that there were times in our history, after the story of Purim and Shushan, the Megillah tells us, that so many converted, they wanted to be part of this people. There were times in our history where Judaism was so, was such an inspiration, was such a draw, that there were whole peoples who converted to Judaism. We live in a time where Jews are leaving Judaism. So again, we need the prophet. We need somebody to stand up and teach Torah's, Torah's timeless values, to bring Torah's timeless wisdom to this world, not because we need the nations to convert to Judaism, but because we need our own people to convert to Judaism. From being a universal, secular, assimilated Jews to being Torah Jews. So uh, that was Avram Avinu. If, if we doubt that one person could stand up and stem this tide and reverse these trends, and in 10 years the Pew results can show incredible change for the better, then this is our parsha to be inspired. If Avram Avinu could do it, then we all can. It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible story. So let's review the parsha quickly, and then we'll get into our psukim that I want to look at this morning. How come he had a Yishmael? How come Avram had a Yishmael? That's a good question. I mean, that, that's a, it's a broader question for all of our avos. Avram had a Yishmael, and had an Esav, and Yaakov had sons who didn't get along. And of course, we bless our children Friday night to be like Ephraim and Menashe, the first generation to get along. First generation... Ironically, by the way, the generation who are raised outside of Israel, the Jewish context in Egypt, are the first generation to, to get along and to have a, a shared vision um, and so on. So it's, a, that, that's an, it's an interesting question, but perhaps for another time. That, that struggle which was then built into Jewish destiny, the struggle of Avram and Yishmael, Jews and, and our cousins, the struggle of Yaakov and Esav. Esav is the progenitor of Christianity, Yishmael of Islam. This was kind of built into our history. And that's the, uh, 
the Gemara, the Medrash, that it's destined for us to never get along. I know Rabbi Yehuda has a different interpretation of that, but if you take it at its face value, the idea that we'll never get along, it's a good question, but beyond the scope of our topic today. So the Parsha, Lech Lecha, Baruch calls Avram to go, um, a question we've studied in the past, we won't review now, but if you look at the end of last week's Parsha, so you see the same, uh, the same trip was taken by Avram's father. Avram went together with his father, Terach, and they too set forth from Ur-Kastim, they began this journey last week's Pasha. What was unique about Avram's attempt in this week's Pasha? We've studied that in the past, we won't look at it. But Avram goes, God gives him these promises. Three promises, Rashi says, correspond with the three deficiencies. Usually you travel on a long journey, you uproot your home, you stand to uh, lose your money, your family's compromised, your name, your profession. God promises him, don't worry about it. As Gadol, with money, it's all going to be good, and I'm going to bless you, and and they'll be blessed through you, all of the peoples of the land. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And you know who believes that? Evangelicals. You know who believes that? Many non-Jews. You know who struggles to believe that and sees that as elitist and biased and racist and struggles and challenged to accept it? It's the majority of Jews. But the Torah makes this promise and many show through history those who welcomed us and who treated us well have indeed been showered with blessing and the opposite is also true. Avram goes together with his nephew Lot with Hanefesh Asher Asu Becharam. This is already a biblical reference to what I was describing earlier. Right? It takes Avram, takes Sarai Ishto, his wife, Lot ben Achiv, his nephew, Chorich Husham, all of their property. He was a wealthy man, fulfillment of God's promise. The Nefesh Asher Asu Becharam, page 54 in the stone. Pasuk Hey, we're just doing an overview of the parsha right now. But he takes all of the Nefesh. What does it mean? How do you make a soul? What did he build a golem? What was this Nefesh Asher Asu Becharam? Rashi already tells us Avram was the father of outreach. Outreach to monotheism. He revolutionized the world. He was incredible. Nefesh Asher Becharan, says Rashi, Hechnisum Tachas Kanfei Ashkina, he introduced them to God. Avram Megayer Es HaAnashim, Vesara Megayer Es HaNashim. Umale Aleyam HaKosov Ki'ilu Asa'um. Avram converted the men, Sarah the women. You see that it's not healthy for the man to be the one who's working with and recruiting the women and the woman with the man. There was a sense of modesty to their project, to their life goal. But they were amazingly accomplished. What ultimately happens to this this group of converts, this posse, this, this group following, where do they go? Do they remain with them? Do they last? Is a question that's discussed by the commentaries. But you see at this point, Avram is revolutionizing the world. One man. And there was no internet. There was no newspaper. And there was no... YouTube. And yet, person by person, in a grassroots way, Avram revolutionized the world such that today we have billions of monotheists. Never give up. Don't worry, those results are, are uh, depressing, but we can't give up. Somebody will arise, a group, a plan, a strategy, collectively. If we set our uh, hearts to it, we can do something. So Avram goes, they go down, there's a famine. They, I'm sorry, God gives him a promise, tells him to go to the land. He goes to the land, shows him that your children are going to live here. And, uh, and then there's a famine. And Avram goes down to Egypt. Why Egypt? We're going to speak about this morning. We talked about last Shabbos Hagadol, but we're going to talk about, review it this morning. Avram goes down to Egypt. In Egypt, he's very fearful. He notices on his way down something that Rashi says he had not noticed previously. What does he notice? He notices. 
I, I never really took notice, but you're very beautiful. You're gorgeous. Now, you can only imagine what their dating was like if he's the first time he's noticing or complimenting her on her looks. So it's one view of Rashi. Rashi, alternatively, I find it more compelling, says, of course he knew she was beautiful. What he meant was, most others on a journey from Israel down to Egypt, through the desert, right? You didn't, you didn't fly business class on El Al. Through the desert on this journey, in this caravan, you look disheveled. It's hard to maintain your makeup, your appearance. Avram looks at her and says, while most other women would look horrible at the end of this journey, your beauty shines forth in a way that I never appreciated how lasting and how sustaining it is. That your beauty is so natural, so inherent, that it was even able to transcend and defy the elements of this journey. That's what Rashi says is the alternative. He tells her you're beautiful. And what does he fear when he realizes how beautiful she is? That the Egyptians, who are a culture that don't respect boundaries and such, are going to want to take her. So Avraham hides her in a, in a piece of luggage, and at, at customs, they open the luggage and find her. I'm not making this up. This is Rashi. And um, he lies. And he tells her in advance, this is the plan. You're going to say you're my sister. And this is even more shocking. It'll be good for me. Forget just that this is our strategy to survive. Survival strategy in the Holocaust. People did all kinds of things in order to survive. Avram's not looking to survive. He's looking to thrive. They're going to be good to me. They're going to treat me well. I'm going to get... Welcome to the palace and giving it all kinds of gifts. The Ramban Nachmanides actually sees this as a sin. This was Avram's mistake. Right? If we were reading the text, we would be hard pressed to Avram Avinu, this was a sin. The Ramban says, and with it provides this great precedent, we studied this in the past too, the notion of how free we are to criticize our Avos and Imahos. Are we free, biblical exegesis, to be critical based on the narrative? But the Ramban paves the way. Says the Ramban Avram made a terrible mistake. A, an error in judgment. He should not have treated Sarah that way. He owed Sarah an apology. But the plan works, even though Paro is uh, turned off by it, is obviously somewhat upset, but sends him away with great gifts, and Avram ascends back to the land of Israel, which is the section that we're going to study together. They return to Israel, Avram and Lot, their um, shepherds quarrel, they fight, and uh, ultimately they have to go two different ways. Um, we, we then... Well, n- not necessarily... That, that's unclear. Right, he shouldn't have gone down. Right, he shouldn't have gone down to Egypt. Correct, the Ramban's critical. He shouldn't have gone down to Egypt. Yeah, which was a precedent for Simon Avos, Maisa Avos, Simon Lebanon. Anyway, the promise to Avram is repeated. You're going to be as many as the, uh, the dust of the earth um, after it's resolved his, uh, his dispute with Lot and the shepherds. We then have the war of the kings. This battle, Sodom is defeated in this uh, battle where Lot who is chosen to live in this hedonistic metropolis of Sodom, is taken captive. Uh, Avram steps forward. You can imagine how powerful and influential Avram is. He's not some stam pushover Jew that uh, Avram is able to step up and uh, influence this war to the result that he wants. Saves his nephew Lot, shuns honor despite the rewards that he's offered. The Torah tells Rashi, quotes the Medrash that he's given we are provided the reward of certain mitzvahs, tzitzis, and so on, for the fact that he refused to take a reward for having done this. God gives another reassurance to Avram, not to worry, I'm going to take care of you, I have your back. Here we have the Brisbane Absarm, we have the covenant, the, uh, where Hashem promises Avram not to worry. Avram's fearful, but ma'idaki irashena. How do I know? By love, he said, take this animal, you're going to bring it, they're going to first suffer in Egypt, in exile, and then I'm going to bring you back. 
the prediction, the prophecy of what we will go through in Egypt and then we'll come out. What does the word Bessar mean? The parts. Parts. That's how at least it's translated. That's at least how it's uh, translated. Hagar and Yishmael, we have the story of uh, uh, Sarah is unable to provide a child. Ain love Vlad, we read at the end of uh, last week's parsha. Afilu Beis Vlad, she didn't even have a uterus. She lacked a uterus, Sarah. And uh, it was therefore even, obviously, an incredible miracle that ultimately she does have a child. It's supernatural, says the Gemara and Sukkah. So she provides uh, Hagar to Avraham, who gives birth to Yishmael. Yishmael is described even at his uh, birth. Uh, where are we? Tezayin, page 70. Um, yeah. The angel, she gives birth. Oh, the bottom line on page 70. This is the Torah's description of Yishmael, progenitor of Islam. He shall be a wild person. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And over all of his brothers shall he dwell. There will be population growth on all continents of his descendants. His hand will be in everything. Everyone will be um, troubled by him. And he'll be a wild person. That's the Torah's description of prophecy of who this Yishmael will be. You can tell me. You can decide on your own whether it's come true. We have this uh, covenant. Avram's 99 years old. Hashem appears to him and says... <coughs> Go before me and be Tamim. Be Tamim. Which is later repeated as part of Tariyag Mitzvah. Tamim Hashem We have an obligation of being Tamim. What is Tamim? We'll see. It connects to what we're going to study today also. Tamim is to rely solely and exclusively on God. We don't believe in superstition. We don't believe in other deities. We don't believe in worshipping the moon. We don't believe in attributing things to good luck or fortune or coincidence or horoscopes, superstition, God says to Avram, Walk with me, stick with me. I'm, God says, stick with me. I have your back. Don't rely on any of these other things. The new names, Avram and Sarah given new names, the mitzvah of brismila, of circumcision, the promise to Sarah, and the end of the Parsha, Avram's family. Okay, so let's get into, that's an overview of the Parsha. And now we'll get into the uh, specific psukim that I want to study together. Parakid Gimel. I want to go through all of Parakid Gimel, hoping we have time. Chapter 13, it's on page 58. Page 58 in the Stone Chumash. What I want to do is read these psukim with you. See the Mephoshim, see the commentators. We'll see what we're troubled by and when we can, if we can resolve it. But what I want to do is show you, based on a fascinating shear by... The truth is this comes from many, many places, but one place is Rabbi Menachem Liebteg from Gush, his uh, Tanakh uh, study center, uh, in an in a, uh, article he wrote on Parshas Ekev, of all places, but it applies to our Parsha as well. What I want to show you is that there's something else going on beneath the surface. This whole idea that Avram descends to Egypt and returns, and then we have this dispute with Lot, and Lot chooses, when given the choice, to go to essentially Egypt or the direction of Egypt. And then we have God promising Avram, your descendants are going to be in servitude in Egypt before Israel. Egypt and Israel, what's going on here? We studied this in depth last year on Shabbos HaGadol. Anyone wants the source sheets, I'm happy to email them to you. We studied this in depth that there's a biblical prohibition to go to Egypt. Torah says in no less than three places, you're not allowed to live in Egypt. You can't live in Egypt. Why? Torah tells us, you can't return to Egypt. 
you shouldn't have too many horses. Why? Because you'll have to go to Egypt to get the horses. That's where horses were bred. And three place Torah says you can't live in Egypt. And of course, we discussed the question. Who lived in Egypt? Rambam. The Rambam lived in Egypt. Ravavadya Yosef. Zecher Tzadik Levracha. His funeral was yesterday. 800,000 people. More than 10% of Israel was there. More than 6% of the entire Jewish population on the globe went to one man's funeral. It's a remarkable fact. Ravavadya Yosef in 1947 was the head of the rabbinical court in Egypt before he came to Israel when he was, after, uh, he was born in Baghdad. So many uh, prominent Jews have lived in Egypt. How did they live in Egypt? Based on this verse, we discussed that. But more significantly, we spoke about why. Why doesn't God want us to live in Egypt? And we developed the idea, a few ideas, of Egypt being more than a geographical location. Egypt is a philosophy. Egypt is a way of life. And when God says, don't go back to Egypt, what he means is, don't go back to that philosophy. Don't go back to that way of life. What's that way of life? How is it different than our way of life? Don't walk like an Egyptian. Walk like a Jew. What's the difference between an Egyptian lifestyle and a Jewish lifestyle? Let's get into our psukim and hopefully we'll have time to see. Perak Yud Gimel Pasagal, chapter 13, verse 1, page 58 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Vayal Avram mid Mitzrayim, hu v'yishto v'chol ha-shalo, v'lot imo ha-negba. Avram ascended from Egypt, he and his wife and all that was with him, and Lot was with him, and where did they go? Ha-negba, to the south. Now, what is the term Vayal? It should have said Vayisa, to travel, to journey, is Vayisa. Why does it say Vayal, to go up? What do we know about Israel? What do we describe a person who moves to Israel? They make Aliyah. They make Aliyah. Aliyah means to go up. Geographically, what do they call it? Uh, Topographically, Egypt is considered an ascension when it's ascending towards it. But also spiritually, Israel is a place in which God's presence can be felt more intensely. You get off that plane and you feel alive. You feel a member of of a people, of a nation. You feel connected. It's a special place, a place that God's eyes are always on. So one ascends when they go up. The highest place in Israel, maybe not topographically, but spiritually, certainly is Yerushalayim, Harim Savivla. One goes up to Yerushalayim, it's called Aliyah L'Regel. Even if you live in Israel, you make Aliyah L'Regel, you go up. And then the highest point on all of earth is not, where do they all climb, the highest point on all of earth? Everest, Mount Everest, the spiritually highest place on all of earth is, of course, Haramoriah, is Harabayas, is the Temple Mount. And that's called the highest aliyah to go up to the Beis HaMikdash. So Vaya Al-Avram, he was in the depth of Egypt, we'll see what Egypt philosophy is in a moment, and he came up back from there to Israel. He and his wife, all that was with him, and Lod. Avram Kaved Ma'od, Avram was very heavy, what does that mean? He didn't eat, he had a lot of fried food when he was in Egypt. What does that mean? He ate a lot of uh, Twinkies, he was uh, fat. He was wealthy. Kaved Ma'od means heavy is a description of having much to carry. Heavy meant he had a great deal. Rashi says, Ta'un Masa'os. He had a lot of luggage. He had been blessed in fulfillment of God's promise. Egypt had provided him great wealth. So he came back by Mekneh, by Uvazahav, with livestock, with silver, and with gold. He was blessed with it all. Kaved Ma'od. What did I see? Oh, the Ibn Ezra. Shishlo Kvudo Raba. This word kavod, when we talk about honor, it comes from the word kaved. Honor and kavod, kavod, honor and kaved, heavy, come from the same thing. Someone who's worthy of honor is heavy with, it could be wealth, it could be with virtues and wonderful qualities, it could be with total learning, 
but they're heavy, meaning that they've accumulated and amassed a lot. So kavod and kaved come from the same place as the Ibn Ezra. Vayelech l'masa'av, Pasuk Gimel. Vayelech l'masa'av, and uh, he went on his journey, Minegev ad Beis El. He went from uh, the south into Beit El, ad makom ashayasham ahalo batchila, back to the tent, back to where he was before he descended to Egypt, bein Beit El ubein ha'ai, between these two places. Why does it tell us that he went back to the same place? Says Rashi, we learn a lesson of Derech Eretz. When he went back from Egypt, he went back to Israel. Where did he stay on the way back? The same hotels. He stayed in the very same hotels that he stayed on the way down. What do you learn from here? You learn consistency, loyalty. Before you had programs of loyalty, you got points. Avram Avinu didn't get points for staying in the same hotel. He stayed there because of customer loyalty. person took good care of him when he was on his way down to Egypt. When he's on his way back, he's going to stay in the very same place. Loyalty. Customer loyalty. Very important fact. The Bali Musa learned from here an additional thing. When Avram descended, he was not a wealthy man. When he came back due to the gifts that he received in Egypt, he came back to what I just described. Kaved Ma'od. He could have stayed. He went down. He stayed at the Holiday Inn. On the way back, he could have stayed at the Waldorf Astoria. But where did he go back to? The Holiday Inn. He was a simple man and he wanted to show loyalty even though he could have afforded something much greater. So it emphasizes that on his journey back he went to the same uh, he went to the same place. Okay. Vaiter. Pasuk Dalet. El makom ha-mezbeach ha-shem barishona ba-yikrosham avram v'shem Hashem. He went back to the uh, site where the mezbeach he had built and there Avram invoked Hashem by name. In other words, the place that Avram had previously reached out to Hashem. The uh, Rashi says, is this referring to previously reached out to Hashem? Or when he came back from Egypt, did he reach out to Hashem again? So Rashi says, V'asher kar Hashem Avram b'shem Hashem V'gam yeshlomar v'ikra Hashem achshav b'shem Hashem Either way, Rashi quotes two opinions. Is it referencing a geographic location that he once called out to Hashem? Or is it saying that what did he do when he got back? The first thing he did was he davened, thanked Hashem for the journey, for the safety, for the security. Could have gone much differently in Egypt. He came back safe. He came back with Sarah. Essentially the equivalent of, as Moshe Leib says, of Ben Shingomo. Pasuk, hey. V'gam lalot ha'oleches avram hayatzon u'bakar ve'ohalem. The sidekick, Lot, his little uh, sidekick, his nephew, Lot, um, who had gone, ha'oleches avram, he also had sown bakar ve'ohalem. He also came back with some wealth. He had some cattle, he had some tents, he had his own entourage. What's unusual about that Pasuk? The Gamla Lot. The way Lot is described is unusual. Should have just said, the Gamla Lot, We already know who Lot is. We've been introduced to him a number of times. He's Avram's nephew. Why is he described as Haholech as Avram? And also Lot, who had traveled with Avram, had these things. Why use that to describe his identity? We already know who he is. So Rashi says, you know why? Because mi garam avram. Why did he have that son bakar va'ohalam? How did he merit to get that wealth? Because he was the shadow of Avram. He was the sidekick of Avram. Avram made him. So therefore the Torah describes Lot was not independently wealthy. Lot was not a self-starting entrepreneur. Lot rode Avram's coattails. And with Avram's coattails, he accumulated his own wealth. And what did he do with that wealth? Was Lot humble and modest because he realized that he wasn't even responsible? He was just a, the recipient of a trust fund? 
was Lord humble and modest because he realized he was in the right place at the right time and, Lot took, and his uncle Avram took good care of him? No. He was kafuitov. Not only was he not appreciative and not only was he not modest, it made him crave more. We just we read in Kohelas on Sukkot. Oiv kesef, lo yispa kesef. Someone who loves money will never be satisfied by money. Which the Gemara learns, the Chazal learned, Oiv Torah, lo yispa Torah. It means that whatever you love, you'll never get enough of. So choose something to love, which is a virtue. Love doing chesed, and you'll never get enough of chesed, that's great. Love exercise instead of loving chocolate cake. You know, love, love helping people, love learning Torah. Whatever you love, you'll never be satiated by. So choose something wisely to love. Form good habits. So here Lot loves this access to the wealth he's received through his uncle. So what happens as a result? They can't live together. There's not room enough. Is there literally not room enough? No, of course there was plenty of room. The land of Israel had plenty of room for Avram and Lot and their entourages, their, their shepherds and all of their wealth. What it means is their egos, not there, Avram's ego was in check. There wasn't enough room in the entire land of Israel for Lot's ego together with his uncle, even though his uncle was the one who was provided him with all the wealth that he had. So what happens? A dispute, a quarrel results ensues between their shepherds. There's a dispute. What's unusual about that Pasuk? What strikes you about that Pasuk? There's a dispute between the shepherds of Avram, the shepherds of Lot, and the Canaanite and the Prizi, two nations were then dwelling in the land of Canaan. What does one thing have to do with the other? There's a dispute between these shepherds, period, hard stop. Oh, and by the way, just for informational purposes, these were the nations living in the land at the time. Clearly, the fact that the Torah links them in one Pasuk seems to indicate that there's a connection between the two. So what's the connection? He's going to inherit because Avram has no children. Oh, so let's see. Says Rashi, there's a dispute between their shepherds. What happens? Now, the Torah just indicated that Lot was independently wealthy. Or not independently, but aside from Avram, had wealth. Nevertheless, what do the shepherds of Lot do? What are they instructed to do? What is their practice? Where do their animals graze? On the field of others. Why? Because why use up your grass? Why use up your produce when you could deplete others of their... But what is that? To allow your animal to graze on others. What is that? So Avram... <coughs> excuse me. Avram's... Thank you. Avram's um, shepherds, who are in his image, his students... Turn to the shepherds of Lot and say, Hey guys, buddies, what are you doing? Don't let your animals graze. They're not stealing. They can't go on that property. How do Lot's shepherds take it? What do you mean? God promised Uncle Avram the land. To whom does this land really belong? My uncle. And who stands to inherit from Avram? Does Avram have any children at this point? No, none. Says Lot, oh, I'm in Uncle Avram's will. I am the sole inheritor. He's going to bequeath all of this to me. So therefore, it's as if I own it now. And that's the attitude of a shepherd. So they therefore allow their animals to graze everywhere. Velot yorshav gezel. So that was their argument. So the Pesach therefore tells us, No, Avram didn't yet acquire the land. It doesn't belong to him. 
Was it God's promise? Yes. Has it been fulfilled yet? No. And therefore, for, uh, for Lot's shepherds to allow the animals to graze is nothing short of thievery. It's stealing and it's inappropriate. But that's the origin of the dispute. Because Avram's uh, uh, shepherds had a strong moral compass. Lot did not. And therefore they did not get along. Says the Sfarno similarly, Says the Sfarno even more so. If there's a dispute between these two brothers, imagine the impact on the other nations that they're living with. If there's a dispute within the family, it's an opportunity for the others to turn on them, says the Sforno. That's the connection between that's the connection between the two. The Kliakar is a little bit of a different point of view. Let's look at the Kliakar quickly. Rashi Kliakar of Lunchitz begins by quoting Rashi. That Avram had not yet inherited the land, therefore it was outright stealing. And that's what Avram's shepherds warned Lotz. The Kasha says the Kliyakar, but that's difficult. Where'd the Prizi come from? Earlier we were told when Avram's going to go to the land, who's living in the land? If you look in Perakid Bey's Pasuk Vav, Vayavor Avram, Avram goes to the Shechem Elone More, and who's living there at the end of Pasuk Vav, Perakid Bey's? Hakinaaniyaz Baaretz. Kanani live there. Ask the Kliakar if you're an astute reader of the text. We've been told the Kanani live there. Where'd these Prizi come from? Who are the Prizi people and how did they get there? The Khan Hiskir Yoshev Elohiskir Zalamala. And here it says that they are Yoshev Ba'aretz, dwelling in the land. And that was not said. It's a Kanani Az Ba'aretz. Didn't say earlier a Kanani Yoshev Ba'aretz. He said they were found in the land. Whereas here it says they're dwelling in the land. So the Kliakar. He's teaching us. You have to read the text with a fine-tooth comb. You have to be very astute and pick up on discrepancies and differences and changes because you can deduce many beautiful lessons, ideas. V'yesh Omrim says the Kliyakar, Sh'ratza lomar elu shnei umos gedolos ha-knani v'ha-prizi nis-yashuv ba'aretz b'lomariva. These two great nations lived in the land and they weren't fighting with one another. U'shnei rom elu lo nasa osam ha'aretz l'sheves yachta. The Torah is, it's an indictment of the shepherds of Lot and Avraham. Means, they were able to live together, two independent sovereign nations. There was enough room for the two of them to dwell together. Why couldn't the shepherds of Lot and Avraham get along? Because egos get in the way. There's not enough room in that shul, in that business, in that community, in that minion, in that whatever. Of course there's enough room. Look at the non-Jews. Look at our Neighbors, they all get along. Why can't we get along? This is an indictment. Incredible kliyaka, right? They got along just fine. Why couldn't the shepherds of the kasha ode? The kliyaka goes on, but we don't have time. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. So, Pasikhes. Avram turns to his nephew and he says, Al mariva this riv, right? We saw two explanations why the Pasuk, why the Torah brings Kanani Vapriziva Azbaretz. But says Avram, I don't want this to reach us. Our shepherds are not getting along. Let it not be Beniu Beinecha. Let it not reach the point of between me and you. 
says the Orachayim Hakadosh. Look, Pasuches Alt Nati Bint Mriva Tam Omru Omro Beniu Veinecha Hodio Kisofalio Samriva Gam Bein Shneihem. If it starts out between our shepherds, ultimately it's going to elevate and escalate till it becomes a fight between us. Why can't we just stay like this? So our shepherds are fighting. But I would never take you on, Uncle Avram. So Avram says, no. If it's already at that level, it's going to escalate. The nature is everyone's loyal to their workers. And if our workers aren't getting along, it's going to escalate to us, and then it's not going to be pretty. What do you see from here? It's the Orachayim. You have to have some foresight. You have to see what's coming. You have to know how to dissolve a partnership before brothers stop talking forever. If the business is not working out, and you see indications it's not working out, get out before it turns, out to an, turns into an all-out war, before people stop talking to one another. Most family disputes where people aren't talking to one another, if you want to get to what's the root of the dispute, the core of the dispute, they used to be in business. Someone was in business with someone else. Had they gotten out when there was the first indication and came to an amicable conclusion, a fair and equitable distribution, they wouldn't have had it happen. So Orachayim says, that's what Avram says to Lot. Lot, I know that you say now that you would never take me on. But you know what? If it's happening among our, our shepherds, then it's going to escalate and get to us, and that won't be good. And therefore... Says Avram, what's his proposal? Pasuk tes. The whole land is before you. He parade na me'alai. So separate from me. Break off. Break away. If you want to go left, I'll go right. You want right, I will go left. Which directions are those? Give them a... What are the directions on the compass? Avram's telling Lot. So everyone says east and west, right? Left and right. East and west. Oh, so is that what it really means, east and west? Look at the look at Unklus. Says Targum Unklus. Who's Targum Unklus? Take ten seconds. Now that the new cycle has begun again, and we have an obligation of reading Targum. Who's Targum Unklus? Unklus is a gear. Unklus is a convert. He lives in the period of the Tanoim. He lives in the uh, first couple centuries of the Common Era. He's a convert, and. Uh, whole story of how the Romans tried to take him out to execute him and not the Romans uh, sorry and yeah and he each of them he, they kissed the mezuzah he touched doesn't say he kissed he touched the mezuzah on the way out they said what are you doing he told them all about the mezuzah by the time they were done they stayed and converted and they gave up on trying to arrest him so who is Unclus why is his targum so authoritative Rav Shechter used to describe in Shir because Unclus normally Jewish kids in Israel and Babylonia centers of Torah learning um, they learned Chumash when they were in first grade second grade third grade whatever age I don't even know what they learned today. they learned when little kids so they took notes so what are we going to rely on their notes to teach us what the Misora what our tradition is for how to understand the Chumash on the one hand that's when they studied Chumash on the other hand they're little kids so Unklus gave us a great opportunity because Unklus was a grown man he decided to convert and join the Jewish people and study Unklus went back to third grade and he sat down and he listened to Torah Chumash being taught. And he took notes. And his notes became Targum Unklus. They're the most authoritative translation that we have of Torah because they were written by an adult but heard from a link in the chain of our Masorah, of our, the transmission of our tradition. So that's Unklus. So how does Unklus translate this verse? Halakol ara kadamach isparish ke'an milvasi im'at daroma. 
Unklosh translates right and left, east and uh, small and yamin, as Tzafon and Darom. What are Tzafon and Darom? Tzafon is north and Darom is south. Vimat Daroma Vana North and south. Why does Unklosh translate it that way? What? As opposed to west and east. He doesn't translate it as west and east. Oh, so it all has to do with perspective. It all has to do with where you're facing. If you're facing east, then you'll say left and right is north and south. Sforno, by the way, says the same thing. No? I thought he said the same thing. Well, the Sforno does not say the same thing. But Unklosh translates it here. Unklosh translates it here as such. Right? Maybe later the Sforno says it? I thought I saw it in the Sforno also. Uh, yeah, the Sforno does say it. If you look to Vaisa Lot Mikedem, we'll see in a moment that Lot chooses Kedem. Sforno says, Lo Natali Amin Velo Lesmol, Shein Tzafon Vidarom, Aval Nasam in Amizrach Lamarach, Lamarov. Even though Avram told Lot to go either north or south, Avram, uh, Lot neglected those choices and chose instead east to west. So you see, the Sforno also understands right and left, not as east and west, but Avram's proposal was right or left as north or south. And we'll see again the significance of this in a moment. Because what's south of Israel? Egypt. What was Avram giving Lot options? You want to head towards Egypt? Their philosophy, their culture, their attitude, their approach? We'll talk about that in a moment. Or north, which is, which is not. So what does Lot choose? Vaisa Lot is nav. He lifts his eyes. Vayar is kola kikara yarden kikula mashke. How does Lot describe where he chooses? First of all, he lifts his eyes. What's the imagery of lifting his eyes? When do a person's eyes get really big? What do they see when their eyes get big? Greed. Greed. Lot didn't make a choice based on which has the best yeshiva, the best shul, best school for his children, which is the best spiritual environment. His eyes get big. Vaisa Lot es enav. Dollar signs. Ching ching. Dollar signs flash. He says, I have a choice where to go. I have this great cattle. I'm real estate, right? Essentially, Lot's in business with his uncle. Real estate, let's call it. And Avram says, this isn't going to work out. We got to break off. You take whatever buildings you want. I'll take the other ones. It's your choice. It's your choice. We're going to go 50-50. You choose the 50. I don't want you to come back to me and say I was unfair. Lot says, I choose the 50. Ching, ching. He sees dollar signs. I'm going to choose the best buildings, the great, best real estate. Where does that real estate happen to be? Near Mitzrayim. Happens to be near Sodom. Happens to be in the most hedonistic, evil, licentious, lascivious, lewd, corrupt place. Does that bother Lot? Not in the least. That's what he chooses. Hold on, so let's just translate the Pasuk. So what does Lot choose? Lot raises his eyes. He sees the Kikar Yardain. He sees the plain, the Jordan Valley. It's well watered everywhere. Why is the Jordan Valley watered everywhere? What waters the Jordan Valley? The Jordan River. Jordan River waters the Jordan Valley. So Lot sees the Jordan River. This is why the Sforno said he didn't see north or south. He saw east. The Jordan River is what waters the Jordan Valley. And this was before Hashem had destroyed Stom and Amorah. And how did the area look? Kigan Hashem. Ke'eretz Mitzrayim Bo'achat Like the Garden of Hashem, like the land of Egypt. What does that mean? It was lush, green, growing, blossoming, beautiful. Why did it look that way? It has perpetual irrigation. It has the most sophisticated, greatest irrigation system in the world called the Jordan River. 
You didn't rely on what? What's the alternative to the Jordan River? The rain. So Lot says, let's see, I can choose an area where for me to be successful, I need the rain. And now you'll get where I'm headed. What do you need to do to get rain? Merit the rain. Pray for the rain. Be worthy of the rain. So I can choose an area where I need to be worthy of rain and pray for rain and rely on rain. Or I can choose the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley, lush, beautiful, where it's always there, the greatest irrigation system that's going to nurture my property. I'm good to go. And what does he liken it to? Why is Lot so excited? Ke'eretz? Mitzrayim. He wants to go. Kikula mashke. It's all, it's all um, watered. It's all irrigated. Ke'eretz Mitzrayim. What irrigated Egypt? The Nile River. The Nile River. Egypt too was a land that you didn't need to rely on God. Egypt was a land where you were independent. You thought... I've got my water source, I've got to grow my... I've got everything. I'm good to go. God, thanks, but no thanks. Don't need you. I'm good to go. Got my irrigation system, can grow my produce, can take care of myself, have my income, have my wealth. I'm good to go. That's what Lot chooses. And we'll see in one second. We'll develop this further. Lot is chooses the Jordan Valley. And Lot goes Mikedem. What does it mean, Mikedem? Lot literally means east. One can say maybe Mikedem means like like Mikedem was Gan Eden was Mikedem he saw this as Gan Eden he headed towards what he perceived as Gan Eden are you kidding? Stone Vamora going to Vegas man it's Gan Eden going to Vegas with an unlimited budget this is Gan Eden I'm not, I'm not saying Vegas is Stone Vamora exactly so it's, it's I'm going east I'm going to Gan Eden but how does Rashi interpret Mikedem? look at Rashi Nasa me'it al Avram v'halach lo l'ma'aravo shel olam Kedda means from the first. It means he left the creator of the universe. Mikedda means he unburdened himself of God. Kedem is an illusion you find it in many places in the Torah. Kedem is a reference and allusion to God. God is the Kadmonu Shal Olam. God is the first of everything. He began it, excuse me, he began it all. He's the Kadmonu Shal Olam. Lot unburdens himself. I'm out of here. He unshackles himself. Huh. Rain, God, Uncle Avram, it's all yours. I'm going to Egypt, Sodom, the river, lucrative income, financial stability. And therefore, when you have the financial stability and you don't feel you rely on God, what do you get? Stone Vamora. If you don't need merits, you don't need to be on your best behavior, you don't need to live an ethical, moral life in order to be worthy of the rain to sustain you, where does man, where is one drawn? You're drawn to a very hedonistic, lustful temptation. You're left with stone va'amora. And therefore, Avram yashav be'aretz Canaan, v'lo yashav be'arei ha'kikar v'ye'ahal ad Sidom. Avram goes to Canaan, Israel, the north, and Lot goes to Sidom. V'anshei Sidom ra'im v'chata'im l'ashem ma'od. What do we think of the people of Sidom? Wicked, evil. Now that load is gone, now that you, Avram, got rid of that low life, I mean, it's not nice to call him low life, it's your nephew, now that you got rid of that young man, Lot, lift your eyes, but not lift your eyes, ching ching, Avram lifts his eyes, God tells him, open your eyes, and what does he see? Every direction. 
Open your eyes and look in every direction. Why? Everything you can see, Avram, it's yours. And it's for your offspring. Adolam, there are periods in our history where we didn't have it. What do you mean Adolam? It means the promise, the right to the land is everlasting, is Adolam. V'samtiyas, zaracha, ka'afar ha'aretz, I'm going to place your children like the dust of the land, asher yuchal, ishlem no safar ha'aretz, kam zaracha yimaneh, just like you can't count them, so too you won't be able to count your offspring. You could spend five hours studying that pasuk. We just did a pew study counting the Jewish people. And guess what? You could count them. And you have a few fingers left over. So what do you mean? They're going to be like the dust of the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth, and the sand of the sea. In fact, we have a prophecy, many prophecies, that describe the Jewish people are never going to be great in number. We're always going to remain small. So what does this passage mean? That imyuchal ishlem nos, just like a person can't count. Obviously, it has to mean something metaphorically, because it has not come true literally, and we have prophecy that contradicts it in its literal sense, but that's beyond our scope today. I encourage you to look further into that puzzle. So God tells Avram, get up and walk the land. And that's how you acquire the land. We'll see in a second. Avram gets up, he goes to Elone Mamre, he goes to Hebron. Everywhere Avram goes, he builds a shul, he builds a mizbeach, he expresses his gratitude, he connects with the Almighty. Let's go back and look at a few Mephorshim and then I want to get to the punchline of this entire topic today. Um, Rashi says, I'm Rashi, Pasuk Gimel, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lot should have identified that the people of stone were wicked. But nevertheless, even though the Torah says, it wasn't a secret to Lot, it wasn't hidden. They weren't duplicitous. They weren't angelic on the outside. And only once you got to know them, you realized that they were terrible, that they were rotten in their core. You, you, could see they, you, you knew who they were on the outside. And nevertheless, Lot chose to dwell together with them. Why does God tell Avraham only once he splits from Lot? Once they break up the family business and they go in two different directions, only then does God tell Avraham, walk around the land, lift your eyes, look in every direction, it's all yours. Why did it take till now? Says the Sfarno Pasuk Yedalad. Velo Amar Zebios Lot Imo Pen Bechvodo Yis Yamrav Yis Gau Lot Varav Yis Amtu Ligzol. What started this whole fight to begin with? Because Lot thought my uncle Avram's getting everything, and I'm his sole inheritor. So God did not want to compound that issue by making Lot have an even more inflated ego or sense of entitlement by telling Avram while Lot was yet with him, look everywhere, this is all going to be yours. So says the Sfarno, it's not coincidental. That's why God waits. Only once there's a split and Avram and Lot are no longer together, now God can confidently tell Avram, look everywhere, lift your eyes, look in every direction. It's all going to belong. It's all, it's all yours. It's all yours. If you look at the Ramban, this idea of Avram walking the land, what does that mean? Why did he have to walk the land? And we know that that's not too difficult, right? Israel's is, you know, smaller than New Jersey. Seven, seven Israels could fit in Florida. You could fit Israel in Florida seven times. You could fit Israel in Lake Michigan, I forgot how many times, multiple times. Israel is not a long, I mean, you know, there are tours that bike from the northern tip of Israel to the southern tip, and it doesn't take months or weeks. It takes a few days. So God tells Avram, walk the breadth of Israel, the width and breadth. Why? 
says the Ramban, Yitachin Shazer Rishus Kiritzono. Amar Allah, Bechol Hashatirzel Alechis Ba'aretz Lecha. So was this a commandment or was it an invitation? Says the Ramban, it's a Rishus. It was an invitation. It's all yours. Take it in. Look at it. It's beautiful. Walk it all. See it's. <clears throat> it's hills and valleys and lush pastures. I will be with you and I will protect you from the other nations. It's all yours. It will belong to you. So go for a stroll. It's like someone's buying you a house and they say, walk through it, enjoy it. Is that a command or is it an invitation? It's an invitation. Check out every closet, look in every pantry, open every cabinet. It's all yours. It's going to be all yours. I'm going to be buying it for you. Vimi mitzvah. The Ramban says there's also an element which was a mitzvah. And that's why he told him to do it immediately. And Avram fulfills it and he walks in every direction. This was, the Gemara and Baba Basra learns, this was the mechanism through which Avram acquired the land. One of the methods of acquisition is by walking a property. When Avram walked this property, he acquired it and was then able to bequeath it to all of, to all of us. The Orachayim HaKadosh points out there was a miracle that took place here. What was the miracle? The Orachayim, Pasuk Yedalad. Lift your eyes and look in every direction from the place where you are. Kan Asalo Nes made a miracle. A Nes Atsum, a great miracle. This was a miracle that Avram could be in one place and see north, south, east, and west without turning around. To be in one place and see it all. I went twice skydiving over Israel, and you could see very far. Haifa, even you could see the boundary of Yerushalayim, but you can't see all the way down to a lot from the sky. Even from 12,000 feet, you can't see everything. This is a miracle. You're beneath, once, once you pass through the clouds, you still can't see it all. But this is a miracle that Avram was able to see everything. And the next Orachayim, Orachayim, you know what the miracle was? Anyone here been to Mini Israel? Little Israel? What's it called? Mini Israel? So God made Mini Israel for Avram. That's what it means. Avram was able to see everything. God essentially gave him a vision of Mini Israel. Even from the place where he was, he saw all the boundaries. He could walk the width and the breadth. He saw the Tanuva factory. He saw Mini Israel. He saw everything that was destined to be in Israel. He was able to take it all in. That was a miracle. Avram walks the land, and now he's separate from Lot. And again, we're not going to continue in the text, but this is, understand from here, Stone then gets conquered, Lot gets in trouble, Stone gets what it deserves, and uh, Avram interferes. So what's really going on beneath the text? We have two minutes left. So what's really going on um, beneath the text? So, Egypt and Israel... The tension is felt palpably in this parsha. Avram descends to Egypt. God brings him back to Israel. It's considered vayal. He ascends. Egypt is. We always talk about going down to Egypt, not only topographically but spiritually. Egypt is saturated with tumah. So what is Egypt? So we've already hinted to it. Egypt, because it's nurtured by the Nile, has confidence, hubris, feels independent, has no use for God. Egypt worships itself, right? Paro. 
Paro would relieve himself in the morning in the Nile River, didn't want his people to see him, there's this sense that we don't rely on God. He wasn't human. He wanted the people to worship him. He was responsible. The Nile River was responsible. They would bow down to the Nile River because the Nile River was their rainmaker. The Nile River was their, was their ATM machine. The Nile River was their income. They had the Nile River. They had no need. So you see throughout the Torah this description, this tension between the philosophy and the attitude of Egypt, which was independent from God, no need to be worthy to merit, no need to pray, no need to connect, no need to have a relationship, versus living in Israel. Israel is a place that relies heavily on rain. We just prayed Geshem, where we began to ask Hashem to provide rain. If Israel doesn't have rain, it's in deep trouble, despite the sal- what's it called salination, the, all the scientific progress. Israel needs rain. Is that coincidental that in the same region, one country as the Nile River needs nothing, and the next needs? That was by design. God put His eyes in there always. It means when you live in Israel, every day you need Hashem. Every day you think of Hashem. Every day you rely on Hashem. Today you can go to Supersol, or you can go to uh, Rami Levi, you go to the supermarket in Israel, so you don't feel it as much. But the farmer knows in Israel they need Hashem. And even if you go shop there, you know you need the rain. It's a clash of civilizations. It's a clash of philosophies. It's a worldview that has a reliance on the Almighty, that feels dependent, that has faith, that works on worthiness and merit, versus a worldview that sees itself as the deity, independent, no need, and therefore becomes saturated with the 49 levels of Tumah. Because when you have no need for God, you have no need to live morally. When you have no need for God, you have no need to merit. When you have no need for God, you feel hubris, arrogance, ego. And you have no need to share with others. And the result is you get the culture of Egypt and you get the culture of Stone, which is an offshoot of a suburb, so to say, of Egypt. Because it too is near the Nile. Lot is given the choice of where to go and what does he choose? Ke'eretz Mitzrayim, Sodom, the Nile, Kad. Who wants God? Mikedem, mono shel olam. He walks away from God. You see this tension. And it's part of Avram goes down to Egypt and Vayal, he comes back. Why did that happen? Maybe God wanted him to see. When he tells them, Vayay tamim, walk with me, be tamimistic. What he means is not like the Egyptians. You know, in Egypt, Egypt was the capital of superstition. Sorcery, superstition, magic. That was Egypt. Do we believe in that? Absolutely not. The red bendel is ridiculous. The red bendel is to wear a red string around your wrist and think that's going to protect you. That's Egypt. You belong in Egypt. If you be- a Jew belongs in Israel, you don't think a red stri- string will protect you. What protects you? Your merits. Be kind and charitable and sensitive and good and honest and have a relationship with God and pray. That protects you. I mean, you really think that if you're unworthy and deserving of something negative... But if you put a red string on your wrist, it's going to shield you? That's magic. That's superstition. It's Darche Amori. It's ridiculous. The Tosefta describes it as Darche Amori. That's Egypt. You know, Rav Shekta says all the time, God says, I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of that superstition. I took you out of those horoscopes. I took you out of that way of thinking. That's Vaya'al. Avram experienced it so he could understand the contrast. And yet the women walk around yeah, you know what it's called? A brilliant business plan. <laughs> you know that Red Spring Taki is a schooler for the people who sell it. That's who it's a schooler for. You know what the number one schooler for Parnassah is? Having a job. 
It's the number one school of Parnassah, having a job. So you see this tension throughout. You see it in many places. Rabbi Liebtag develops it, but it's developed by many others also. By the way, you also see my brother once gave a Chabura here in the shul, also proving. I wish he had more time. And you see it alluded to here even with Lot. The difference between fruit and vegetables. Fruit are obligated in trumas and maestros, tithing. Vegetables only rabbinically. Vegetables really technically are not. Where do vegetables come from? They're irrigated by the ground. They come all year round. The fruit relies on the rain. They are very, very different, and they represent our, our philosophy as well. You have our patriarchs begging their children, whatever you do, don't bury me in Egypt. Yosef, when you leave, you must take me out of Egypt. Whatever you do, don't leave me in Egypt. Egypt, Israel is described as a good land, right? In, in Dvarim, Perekhes, Hashem Lakechem, Mibiachel, Eretz Tova, Israel is described as a good land, but the Jewish people feel Egypt is an even better land. And this is the, the struggle. When we're going through our adolescence in the desert, when God's taking us out, we're tempted to want to go back to Egypt. Well, how do we describe that? How do we describe that? What does it say? Shockingly, I never understood this until now. When the nation, Bamidbar, when they're complaining, Bamidbar chapter 11, God hears them. What is it that they want? Zacharna, we remember? Hakishuim, Ha'avtechim. The cucumbers and the watermelons. What are those? Vegetables. We all from the ground. We remember this was my brother's chiddush. I heard this from my brother. They say, we remember the vegetables. In other words, we're here in the desert. The mun falling from God. We don't want to rely on God, Moshe. Take us back to Egypt. We want a Nile. We want a river. We want the Jordan River. We want a river that's going to irrigate. We want vegetables. We want to be able to depend consistently on the ATM machine, on the income. We don't want a life where you have to be worthy and merit and pray and have faith. We don't want that. We want it to come no matter what. We want the ATM machine to spit it out no matter what. So that's what's really going on here. Just beneath the surface, that's what's really going on. Avram, in the debate between Avram and Lot, and they're split and going in two different directions, is the clash of civilizations. That Egypt lacks... Uh, Egypt is a independent place. It has the Nile. Israel relies on the rainfall, is a place of dependence on Hashem. And therefore, ultimately, what this really is, is a, uh, is a debate of philosophy. Avram chooses a lifestyle with Hashem. Lot chooses to dismiss the yoke of Hashem. And you see the results. Lot moves to stone and ultimately needs his uncle Avram to come and to save him. Okay.